Hello and welcome to the Scottish National GP IT Users Podcast, where we explore the latest developments in technology and innovation in primary care. I'm a computer-generated voice but I do promise that everyone else on this podcast is a real human. In this episode, we delve into the topic of decision support for high-risk prescribing, an issue that is increasingly important in modern healthcare. You too can learn to make the right decision. This is the Snug Podcast. In this episode, making the right decision. We need systems to be taking some responsibility to help us keep ourselves and our patients safe. Always had very much in my sights the aim of embedding decision support in electronic health record systems. Every single clinician said, 100%, I need to keep this. This is this is helping me in my day-to-day work, which is a, a credit to the tool. Hello and welcome to the Snug Podcast. I'm Andrew McElhinney. I'm a GP in NHS Forth Valley, and I am human, I think. The Snug Podcast is hosted on Podbean, but you can subscribe if you're interested and get the latest episode delivered to your phone by Apple, Google or Spotify or other good podcast providers. Now, we do cover quite a broad range of topics on the Snug Podcast, some of which may be more relevant to GPs or sometimes to practice managers. But today, I think we have a topic that is of more clinical interest and would be of interest to any prescriber, not just in general practice, but also in the community or even secondary care. So any pharmacist, and especially those attached to general practice, are especially welcome, as I think the topic today will be of particular interest to you. We're talking and thinking about high-risk prescribing, and how a new addition to our GP systems is going to help us make our prescribing safer. Later on, I'll chat to Dr Scott Jameson, who's a GP in Tayside. He's been piloting the Right Decision Prescribing Support Tool on the Vision System. But first of all, I'm going to speak to Dr Anne Wales whom some of you may have heard at the last SNUG conference. Anne is the Programme Director for Knowledge and Decision Support at the Digital Health and Care Innovation Centre, and we talked about the new Right Decision Support service. Well, Anne, welcome. Welcome to the SNUG podcast. Uh, It's really great to be able to speak today. Just wondering, would you be able to give us a quick introduction to yourself, you know, in terms of your background and what you're doing currently? Yes. So I'm the Programme Director for Knowledge and Decision Support. I'm currently based in the Digital Health and Care Innovation Centre, but my role and the National Decision Support Programme that I manage are in the process of moving over to Healthcare Improvement Scotland over the next six months. I manage the National Decision Support Programme, which is funded by Scottish Government Digital Health and Care. We also receive a significant amount of funding from Scottish Government Effective Prescribing, but specifically for the high-risk prescribing decision support that we'll talk about today. At the heart of the National Decision Support Programme sits the Right Decision Service, which is the national decision support platform for health and social care. This enables easy building and also finding 
of decision support tools across all health and social care organisations. I guess we're yeah we're we're focusing mainly on the on the right decision service today, as you mentioned, and it made me think. As a GP, we're surrounded by vast amounts of information and guidelines and uh, prescribing advice and warnings. And, and all of this is well-intentioned, but it can sometimes overload us a bit. And I, actually, what I find is, you know, that we can get sent these guidelines, but they're not available at the point of care when we really need them. So I just wondered, how did you set out trying to make this useful for clinicians, you know, at, at, in a way that they would find accessible? Yes, uh, so you've hit on the uh, the core of the challenge, really, which is about making best evidence available in a very action-focused format to clinicians at point of care, you know, when and where they need it. So it's a, a just-in-time type of decision support rather than just-in-case, you know, providing great libraries of guidelines that clinicians may or, or may not use. And we know from the literature, it's been apparent for a long time that one of the highest impact forms of decision support is uh, alerting in the context of the patient record, because that really pushes the evidence-based actions to the clinician at the point of consultation when they have the patient in front of them usually and uh, when the immediate need an opportunity to support a decision that will improve things where the patient is there. So I've always had very much in my sights the aim of embedding decision support in electronic health record systems and making it proactive push type support rather than requiring the clinician to go out and search for the relevant guideline or the relevant bit of a guideline that they need at any one time. And do we know that this is actually effective in reducing high risk prescribing? Yes, so we know again from the published evidence base that this type of alert-oriented decision support in the context of the patient record is or can be highly effective for prescribing decisions. That's one of the areas where decision support is known to have highest impact. Also in our own initial pilot, of the high-risk prescribing decision support prompts in the Vision Electronic Health Record System in primary care in Lothian and Tayside. We got a very positive response from clinicians. 84% said, out of 38 clinicians said that this had had a significant impact on patient care and had significantly reduced risk in at least one instance and all the clinicians who piloted have continued to use it well over a year after the initial pilot. Yeah, I I guess not all GPs and pharmacists might potentially feel the same. Well, maybe they will, maybe they'll all find it useful, but I I, I just wondered what the sort of factors are, you know, you think that, um, that influence how clinicians react to these prompts. So from the the feedback from the pilot and, and that feedback is backed up by the, the research evidence. Some of the key factors are making sure that the alerts 
only trigger when there is genuinely a, a very high risk, serious issue for the clinician to pay attention to. If the threshold for alerts is set too low and uh, these alerts are triggering when there isn't really an urgent or critical issue for the clinician to address. We know that alert fatigue comes into play and clinicians will simply ignore the alerts. So making sure the alerting is focused just to really critical high-risk issues is quite key. Another key factor is ensuring that the alerts aren't just alerting to the fact that there's a problem. They also need to give a very clear statement of recommended actions so that the clinician has quick sight of what they can do to uh, mitigate any risk that has been identified. Another key element in successful decision support is the ability for the clinician to choose when appropriate to suppress an alert. This is particularly relevant in polypharmacy, the, the focus of our high-risk prescribing decision support, where very complex patients have very complex needs and there often isn't a simple black and white recommendation that this is the, the best action for an individual patient. So in line with real estate medicine, the decision support system recognises that decisions need to be made on an individual patient basis, taking into account their circumstances and other comorbidities, etc. So the ability for the clinician to suppress the alert for you know, a defined period of time and the ability to reinstate that alert when appropriate also was really important to the clinicians in this study so that they aren't constantly being alerted by reminders when they've already made a decision that for this patient actually it's best to proceed with the, the regime that's in place. And I guess to give some examples of, of the kind of combinations that can be harmful, I mean, I guess we're talking a lot about patients with renal impairment, maybe being given non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or diuretics, ACE inhibitors, these kind of things. And and then apart from harmful combinations, you're also looking at people who could benefit from things like anticoagulation, patients with atrial fibrillation, that kind of thing? Yes, yes. So the majority of the high-risk prescribing alerts are more complex than drug-drug interactions. There are a few, you know, very high-risk interactions that are highlighted, like the triple whammy, as it's called, for example. But generally, it's recognised that vision and EMIS's own inbuilt um, drug interaction checkers should trap those at the point of prescribing. This decision support works at the point of opening the patient record. So it's really ideally positioned to pick up any changes and risks that have emerged after the prescription is made. So, for example, disease drug interactions. It may be that after an initial prescription was placed, the patient might have been diagnosed, say, with dementia or a patient on certain diabetes medications might be diagnosed with um, cardiovascular disease and that would have you know, an impact on the prescribing of their, their diabetes medications. 
It also picks up on omission of medications to counter clinical risk factors such as atrial fibrillation. It takes account of the impact of age on medications. So clearly age is something that will change after the point of prescribing. And many of them pick up on changes in biochemistry and physiological measures, such as HbA1c levels or electrolyte levels or blood pressure changes that impact on medicine safety. And a final type of alert that is supported is risks associated with the duration of prescription, for example, for opioids and benzodiazepines. Yeah, these are all so important. And I, I guess we're kind of talking about the value of, of highlighting combinations of codes and medications and values and adding an extra layer of intelligence to the system. Exactly, yes. Just wondering, will these trigger for admin staff as well, or is it just clinicians? No, the decision support tool can be made available only to appropriate staff within the practice. So generally, it will just be the clinicians. Perfect. Yeah, no, that's great. And yeah, I I was just thinking um, about this as well. Do you have plans to make these sort of warnings available to maybe other settings like outpatient clinics or, or hospitals? Yes, we we would very much like to do that. And in fact, we've just recently been given the go ahead for an initial pilot of decision support uh, in track here in NHS Lothian. There will be additional challenges in track here because it doesn't have the wealth of structured and coded data that the primary care EHR systems have. So we're more limited in what we can do. But another way of looking at that is that we we just need to be more creative in the way that we implement the decision support. Oh, that's great. Well, you, you'd be glad to, glad to know I've I've downloaded and installed the Right Decision Mega app. Oh, have yes. you? Very good. Right, great. Maybe to finish off with, would you like to just do a little bit of explanation about the benefits that you see that providing? Yes, so the Right Decision Once for Scotland app, or mega app as we sometimes call it, um, brings together into one place all 27 um, existing Right Decision service apps that cover a wide variety of clinical and social care topics and uh, many health boards, national programmes and social care organisations so that rather than those all existing just independently as 27 apps that you need to search for up in the app store, they're all accessible through one single app. This means that the clinician can find both the national guidance, say for polypharmacy, and their local medicines guidance, clinical guidance, referral guidance, where their boards use the the right decision service to deliver that information. They can also find calculators, risk stratification tools, little algorithmic question and answer tools that will take the user through the appropriate route in a decision tree to get to the, the appropriate recommendation for their clinical situation. So it's a whole range of different types of decision support tool, local and national, brought together to be easily findable from one place. And the the intention is this will 
make it quicker and easier for practitioners to access that critical information they need at point of care and to put it into action much more readily than, than is possible just now. Hi Scott, it's great to be able to talk again. Now I know you're always extremely busy, just wondering how's life at the moment? Yeah, it's going, going well, Andrew. As always, uh, a good way to keep somebody busy and get a job done is give it to a busy person. And um, I, I like to uh, keep my empty inbox and get through the day's work. And yeah, I like to keep busy with um, many fingers and many pies. Um, always keeping busy and always interested on, on new challenges. Yeah, no, I know that. And yes, it just strikes me, we were discussing the, the in-hours activity data uh, the last time we had a, a podcast. Are you, you finding that useful? Yes, uh, well, until on Friday when we went hosted, and unfortunately, it's not quite in the hosted solution just yet. But it's been really useful. If you look at um, the Kenmore Medical Practice website, you can see actually how we're using it to to produce data, and it's um, you know published on the website now each month about our activity for our nurses and for our GPs and telephone contacts, and it's much much easier to be able to find these data out and and, and utilize them. We can also see impacts. Um, we were looking at one of our our new salaried doctors and the impact of our trainees and things like that. So so much easier easier to be able to, to utilise and see practice level data, but also really fantastic to see the aggregate data, Andrew, being published now. And um, barring a few teething issues, I think getting that just over the line to get it to maybe a frequency of updating, which is going to be useful to actually use it from a partnership or from a board perspective on a on a week-to-week basis, which I think I'm told is, is possibly coming. It's been great to see that aggregate data to, to show. And, and once we get everybody released on the tool, I'm sure we'll get that kind of um, line in the sand with regards to why we need to be accurate in our consultation types, and then we'll be able to make some use of the data. And so, yeah, it's been great. Uh, lots of things happening. Now, the main reason, really, we wanted to talk tonight was really just to get a little bit more feedback from you on what we've been talking to Anne Wales about a little bit earlier, um, the right decision, high-risk prescribing support, and it's up and running in Vision, I know. W- would you be able to give us a little bit of um, talk about that, about what your experience has been? Yeah, of course, Andrew. So, this really goes back to, uh, if, if anyone who is familiar with the, the original study, I think Bruce Guthrie was involved um, and, uh, and others, Tobias, um, the PDQIP or the DQIP as it was originally, which was a study done in Tayside, I think, where they originally tried to say to GPs, um, here is a high-risk prescribing combination. We want you to try and, and not have people on this prescribing combination and we'll, we'll pay for your time to review that. And afterwards, um, what what happens and what they showed is, was it NSAIDs and CKD, as I recall? Um, People who were prescribed NSAIDs who had a a degree of CKD or reduced GFR, um, they they paid them to do the review. But afterwards, they showed that they actually, by prompting them, they managed to sustain their reduction in prescribing of that harmful combination. It actually surprisingly showed patient outcomes improved as well, actually. They showed reduced admissions in that population versus um, elsewhere in Scotland, which is, for the size of population, slightly unexpected, but not surprising in some ways, I suppose, because you point out to clinicians that something is a safety issue. And if it is genuinely a safety issue, clinicians tend to try and pay attention to it. So what from there then became PDQIP, um, which was meant to stand for pharmacist, as I recall, which was all embedded within STU and the polypharmacy triggers. And as you remember, if you open up STU, um, if you're familiar with that platform, you will see a ton of patients in there with a a multitude of combination of different uh, polypharmacy triggers. And that's everything from somebody's prescribed an ACE and an ARB, or they've got a triple whammy combination, or they're prescribed a calcium channel blocker or rate related calcium channel blocker plus a beta blocker. Things that you think mm, probably don't ideally want to do that. 
But the problem was it was in Stu. It was not, you know, it was a retrospective look. It was a who has opened up Stu to have a look at this. So that was a real problem, Andrew, because when you went in there, there were a lot of people that were triggering in that. And sometimes you would look at it and go, I'd wish I'd known that before that that thing had happened. And and I've never I'd never found somebody actually coming to harm, but I'd seen a lot of things that I thought I wish we'd known that had happened because we would not want to do that. And we had, you know, when you go in there and did reviews, you had to change stuff and find some of those things made you, made you gasp a little bit. So we had to do something different. And that's what we've done now. Yeah. And although we've had audits set up in the past to try and find some of these high risk groups, obviously it's like an extra bit of work that you've got to go and do and often we might not have a lot of time to do that. So I can only see that being prompted to address these sort of quality issues during the course of our daily work can only be a good thing. Yeah, absolutely, Andrew. So, so, so the, the change here really is pulling that into the consultation. So um, when you o- open up the notes, um, where one of those uh, triggers to be active for that patient, it'll ping up in front of you. Um, now, some of them you you might well take in your stride. So there obviously is a polypharmacy risk trigger for prescribed greater than 180 milligrams of, of opioid equivalent and you might open it up and look and say ah yes but I'm in here to uh, you know prescribe some more just in case medication for this poor patient who's got a, a large dose fentanyl patch and is needing some more oxycodone or something um, and you might think well that's fine let's sleep that but you know, you might open it up and suddenly find, did we really mean to prescribe an ACE and an ARB? Let's just quadruple check that. And um, sometimes you check and you find, ah, they're under renal. It's a it's a brilliant cunning plan by our clever physician colleagues. And other times you open it and go, oh, right. It, it wasn't it wasn't so cunning. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't so cunning. This, 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 this has been completely unintentional. And Andrew, that's not blame. Like prescribing is so complex um, compared to even when I started, you know, t- whatever you know medical school 20 odd years ago the the bnf has just grown bigger and bigger and bigger and the complexities of what we're doing has got more and more complicated no less the number of non-medical prescribers we also have as well we need systems to be taking some responsibility to help us keep ourselves and our patients safe and and we can't just depend upon saying well you know dr mcelhaney that's your signature at the bottom of that prescription you're responsible for checking all that stuff uh yeah but it would be nice if the system acknowledged that actually, you had thousands of other prescriptions to sign that day and wouldn't it be helpful if there was a system around it to try and make that useful? This is different to the inbuilt prescribing safety systems. You'll need to remember this is based upon the individual patient characteristics. So there are things there like a dementia diagnosis and their HP1C is um, you know less than in 53, I think the trigger is. You know, if you have somebody with dementia and your HP, do you really want to aggressively control their HP1C less than 53? Um, do you want to control it less than... Yeah, 48 is one of the triggers as well. So if they're age over 75, they've got an HB1C less than 48, you potentially, um, and, and they're on like a softener or urea and things like that, it will trigger and say, do you, do you want to just check this? And sometimes you go in and say, no, no, it's fine. They're on insulin and, you know, they're not eating very much these days, but, you know, let's maybe cut back their insulin slightly. Or you, 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 sometimes you accept it, but sometimes I have to say you, you definitely want to do something about it. So these have been clinician checked, I suppose, Andrew, is what I'd say. These are things that you look at and go, this is not like every time you open the note, somebody triggers. I'll tell you that much. Um, um, it's definitely not. So when somebody triggers, I definitely look at it and I go, 
what is it and and do I need to double check this or do I already know about it and can I put it to sleep and say actually I don't need to see that trigger again I know exactly what's going on there that's an intentional thing or is it something that, that that's that and, and I'm sure as Anne highlighted every practice who was in the pilot wants to keep it and there's very few things that GPs ever say about an extra pop-up that they'll want to keep it but every every single clinician said 100% I need to keep this this is this is helping me in my day-to-day work which is a, a credit to the tool and as much as it needs to improve and there's things about it which are a bit quirky like it doesn't do it at the point of doing it so if you you know they're already on um candesartan and you you prescribe some lisinopril very in te- well intentionally and you just don't spot it for whatever reason and uh, it, it would be lovely if it pugged up at the same time and um, but it doesn't just because of the way stew and and the the the, the medicines things work it refreshes overnight and it'll trigger the next time you open up the notes so it is um, something to be mindful of but there are things afoot to try and see if if it's possible to do it at that point but um that would need a little bit of a restructure about how stew and the refreshes for that kind of system work but it's definitely something that we're, we're aiming for no, that's great. I mean, it sounds like people are feeling it. It's a helpful thing rather than an annoying thing. And there's this whole worry about alert fatigue. And if we get bombarded by too many alerts, we ignore them all. But actually, it sounds like you, you've maybe already answered this next question then really to some extent. But as someone who remembers what the quality and outcomes framework or COF approach was where, you know, we'd be bombarded by increasing numbers of alerts around blood pressure, smoking, long-acting contraception and everything in between. This doesn't sound like the same thing. Very, very, very far from it, Andrew. So these are these are generally um, sometimes prescribing, but sometimes blood pressure ones as well. Um, there's, a, there's a good little blood pressure one that pops up that will say, you know, I think it's blood pressure less than 100 uh, systolic and they're on multiple antihypertensives and you look at it and you go, oh, yeah, so they are. And it's, you know, it's often like the, the district nurses have been out or it's from a home visit and just, you know, those other ancillary things. And so it does depend on coding. That's the other thing to highlight that, you know, if somebody is coding that blood pressure, but it, there's one of the triggers which sometimes catches you, which is, of course, based on pulse, not something people tend to code particularly well. But if the last pulse that was coded is less than 55 and you're on a beta blocker, it will trigger and say, are you sure you're happy with that that pulse? Um, and so maybe it's one of those things that we maybe could be be a bit better at triggering that, you you know, if they're not the symptoms, it's not a massive deal. And if they do have symptoms, they often will say to us and we'll, we'll make an adjustment on that beta blocker. But, you know, it does depend on coding. So things like their HB1C or their blood pressure or their age or these kind of things. So it's driven by patient characteristics in, in it, but it, it works it works really well. We've had a really good team of people that are reviewing, reviewed all the triggers to actually try and make the most sense clinically as best we can possibly make it. Pharmacists and, and GPs, of course. But yeah, it's been really great work because it's where where we need to go um, to yeah. keep ourselves safe, to be honest. Yeah, no, it sounds really, really useful. And I suppose a key thing is in terms of availability to practices. And it's it's fascinating to hear you've just got on the, the new hosted version of Vision. Um, and I, I wonder how likely it is that practices will be able to get access, you know, to this. Well, the intention, I think, Andrew, is that, that when we've got NSS I think are at the final stages of the testing of it within the hosted solution um, and, and I understand it that all because I, I, I on Friday when I moved to the hosted solution um, um, I lost it along with uh, a few other things um, but it'll be hopefully recouped um, Anne is working hard with the NSS uh, and Sengedon team to 
get that all approved so that actually I suspect what might be offered is when you move to the hosted solution, it might be something that potentially is offered actually as you move. Now, obviously, we need to make the, the pitch right and make sure practices understand what it is about and things like that. And that, that needs to come for some national messaging. But certainly across Tayside, we've uh, approved that and we've let practices know about some of that as well. So we did a lot of the piloting in Tayside alongside, I think, our was our loading colleagues, I think. And certainly across Tayside, we're, we're happy that practices, as they move across to the hosted solution, they, they are they are they are offered it there, and I think we need to make sure that the I don't want to call it the sellers right, but we need to make sure they understand what it's about because I'm sure instant um, antibodies could develop if we don't make sure that we're really clear on how it's helpful and supportive and not distracting and fatiguing. There there isn't one that triggers that you don't want to check. I'll be really honest. You just don't. It's the th- it's not like um, forgive me for those that love these things, but you know it doesn't say you know could raise convulsant threshold. Consider QTC inter. It's not not like that stuff at all. It's like oh right, let's let's double check that. <laughs> it's uh, definitely not um, trivial stuff. Well, the key thing, as you said, is that nobody wants to give it up once they've tried it. Yes. No, no, but anybody who's had it wants to keep it. So there you go, the proof's in the pudding. I just wondered, yeah, would each board have to ratify it then? Do you see it being done at that level? That's how we've done it for this bit of it. I think Anne and the team, I suspect we want to be happy that across a board it can work as one. And I think when we get that, that'll be far easier to for, for a national level to say, is everyone happy? I am quite a believer in board level, um, I don't want to call it autonomy, but board level buy-in, if that makes sense. I think if this is going to float, it's got to be, you know, people at a local level being happy with it and saying that makes a lot of sense because otherwise I think if it's imposed upon people from on high and um, these things tend to sometimes not quite um, fall as, as as well as they'd be intended but above my pay grade Andrew to make such um, decisions I am there just to give my clinical and um, operationalization expertise but from my perspective um, yeah I think every Every practice um, would love to have it. Every pharmacist, non-medical prescriber, you know, paramedic, registrar, medical student. Why why would we think that we should be not letting those kind of people don't think of this as the the GP tool. This is a this is a multidisciplinary team tool that are using your clinical system. That it's really important when these other prescribers are in the system that something comes up that they think, well, actually, you know, is that my responsibility? And let me have a look at that. And if I don't know how to deal with it, I'll maybe pass it to somebody that could that could help me deal with it. Discuss it with a pharmacist and say, look, this listen, this is in bone protection. And I'm sorry, I'm the I'm the paramedic here for urgent care, but um, bone protection seems an important thing. Um, because I'm a paramedic, protecting bones is a good idea but i don't know how to do that with prednisolone so is somebody able to help out here and then when you suddenly look at it and they're they're getting a continuous five milligrams in the background there that they've been grumbling away for their sarcoid or whatever it is and nobody's quite clocked that that's what's happening maybe maybe somebody should have a look at that and give them some bone protection that would be wise and these are the easy things that slip under the net especially if somebody with sarcoid has 25 repeats and you just look at it and go how how else were we going to spot that? Because you're not going to spot it with a a general you know medication review annually when you're just in the notes trying to do fifteen other things at the same time potentially. So um, yeah, it's it's there for safety. I know. I'm delighted you're so enthusiastic about it, but I would have expected nothing less. Really think this sounds like a great development, and and we look forward to it becoming more widely available. Cheers, Andrew. Thank you. So many thanks to both Scott and Anne for updating us on what is a really important development and welcome enhancement for our GP systems. 
And when you think about all the data that we collect every day as part of our daily work, it is really nice to think that we can look forward to getting some benefit from that in terms of some added intelligence and support for some of the many decisions that we make every day about the care of our patients. Now, for those of you who may have caught the last episode of the podcast and enjoy hearing about AI developments, things have moved on significantly in the past couple of months as Microsoft have now bought ChatGPT. So, rather surprisingly, there's a brand new super intelligent web browser called Bing. Yes, Bing. You can now search with the power of AI and sign up to try out the new browser, which still does create poetry and essays and letters, but also gives you references and relevant websites for recipes, journeys you're planning, anything, any work you need to do. Needless to say, Google and every other major tech company are trying to compete, so the stage is set for all your favourite web platforms to suddenly get a lot smarter. I've put some links in the podcast notes to find out some more, if you're interested. Now let's hope your GP system gets smarter too. Look forward to joining you for the next episode of the Snug Podcast. Bye. This episode of the Scottish National Users Group Podcast is now over. It has time to find something else to do. Until the next time, goodbye.